BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called patreon.com slash BP show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Good morning. I'm Jonathan Allen, sitting in for Bill Press uh, alongside Peter Ogburn. You're familiar with him? Hello, John. Hello, Peter. How are you, sir? I'm good. Happy Friday. Friday? That's not how they say it in Paris, where Donald Trump has been tweeting all night. How do they say it in Paris? That's a good question, Meredy Macker. Like I have to like go through my, I don't know what's what, Lindy Meredy Macker. I, 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 I do no French. No, I forget Friday. You know what I speak? The international language of love. Of love. Oh, also a romance language. That's yeah. true. <laughs> All right, that's disgusting. All right, that's true. Uh, so Peter, um, Donald Trump is in Paris. He's been sure tweeting is. about healthcare. That's Friday. What was that? Vendredi. Oh. Vendredi. How did go. I ever... Oh, sacre <laughs> No, wait, that's... Sacre Vendredi. sacre is a neighborhood in Paris that uh, might be frequented by people who... Um, oh, dear. Yeah. There's like a red light district around like sacre -Cœur. At least there was. When my friend Jim lived there. Are you guys, are you guys familiar with Jim? Jim, uh, yeah, we all got that friend Jim, President right? President Trump's friend. There's a... I just want to play this because it sounds so crazy. Jim Barron? So uh, frequently, President Trump will refer to his friend Jim, who says it's no longer safe in, in Paris. Um, and, Jamie, you got a little audio on that from a press conference the president did yesterday with Emmanuel You've Macron. mentioned a friend, Jim. Uh, we told you that Paris is no longer Paris. Um, you were implying at the time that Paris was not safe anymore. You've also said that France and Germany are infected by terrorism. And, quote, it's their fault because they let people enter the territory. Uh, those are very strong words. Uh, would you repeat them today? And do you still believe that France is not able to fight terrorism on its own territory? Thank you. You better let me answer that one first. That's a beauty. Folks, folks. He has no idea what to say, and it's not entirely clear that there's a real... Jim, thank you for adjusting my mic, Peter. Rem reminiscent of my wife adjusting my collar. Theater of the mind, folks. On this, uh, on this picnic table, uh, <laughs> picnic table uh, the cover of a shirt. Teamwork makes a dream work. That's all I'm saying. It's here nice. to help. It's a, I appreciate it. So... Uh, not clear that President Trump has a friend, Jim. Uh, no. Not clear that he actually believes it's not safe to be in Paris or France because he's in Paris, France. Yeah. Um, Trump is Jim. 
that's just kind of the funny part of what's been going on. But Bob there are Bob serious parts. I mean, he was tweeting overnight about the health care bill. Uh, he said he will be at his desk ready to sign it if it comes. Um, I think he's trying to – my personal view is he's trying to signal to his – followers that he's not actually overseas in Paris. <laughs> that he has not actually decided that one of his first foreign trips will be to France. If you're one of those people that get their news exclusively from the president's Twitter feed. I mean, if you remember, they won't. They were not... Uh, they, America was angry at France yeah. uh, around the time of the Iraq War because France was reluctant to get into the Iraq Freedom War. Freedom Fries. Freedom Fries. The they Freedom renamed fries. French Fries Freedom Fries. Uh, that was just one of the things. I remember uh, Tom DeLay had a t-shirt that said uh, fr- uh, Texas is bigger than France. And of course, the old joke about uh, the gun on eBay, the French uh, oh, yeah. the French gun on eBay that had been uh, dropped twice but never fired. Yeah. Um, so, because they all forget, and to his credit, Donald Trump has remembered this week uh, that France was there for America in its original time of need. Yeah. Uh, Lafayette uh, uh, coming to help us. All right, so you have a, a quick... Uh, we don't have time to... Eh. Yeah, let's, let's just skip We'll do it on the other side of the let's break. Just, wait, I have that clip, though. You want the clip? Yes, of, I want uh, the clip. Save it for next hour. Let's All listen right. to the clip. No, well, actually... Um, no, no. I take it back. Wow. All right, hey, guys, it's early in the morning. Nobody's had any coffee, and uh, we're just... We're getting in slow, but don't worry. On the other side of the break, we'll be good. We have uh, an awesome lineup, by the way, this morning. We're going to talk to... Rachel Rubin, the healthcare reporter at The Hill, and then Capri Cafaro, former Ohio State Senator, and Stacey Plaskett, the delegate from the Virgin Islands and a uh, veteran of the Justice Department who's going to let us know what Donald Trump might actually be in trouble for. What a show, what a show. It's all coming up right after this break. We'll see you in a moment. On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. And I'm Jonathan Allen, sitting in for Bill Press. Uh, I'm a roll call columnist and co-author of two books with Amy Parnes, HRC, and Shattered, both of them about Hillary Clinton, uh, the last of which was about the 2016 election. Can I tell you how much uh, mail we get about your book? Because Bill Press is prominently featured in the book bill press is prominently featured in the because book. he if in case you didn't know this already and if you haven't you clearly haven't been listening to the show uh the bernie sanders for president campaign was launched in bill press's living room it was born what yeah really i know i know no. you hadn't heard, heard this uh bill and carol press were the midwives to the that's a good way to, to the it. bernie sanders is there campaign. anywhere that i can read about this you can in fact, in a book called Shattered, Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign. Chapter 3, I believe. And I understand that Shattered is coming to the silver screen. Is that right? We had... Well, the silver screen, I'm not sure. It has been optioned uh, by some Hollywood interests mm. uh, for a possible uh, TV miniseries. So we had a whole conversation about who would play who in this, right? So Bill... His his idea for who plays him, he says, would be uh, Sam Shepard. Wait, who did he say? <laughs> he said he said uh, Paul Newman, but Paul Newman croaked, right? Mm, no, no, I think he's is he no. still with us. Whoa, 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 whoa. let's not put is out. Paul ca- Newman still with us? No fake news here. I'm pretty sure oh, he's still crap. with us. <laughs> you can't he just might say be. people. No, died. Paul Newman died in 2008. Yeah, I thought he croaked. <laughs> whoa. <laughs> 
Yeah, Paul Gannon is no longer with you know, us. We're thinking, we're thinking of Robert Redford, who is still alive. Robert Redford's still, still alive. Still making movies. They're not the same guy. So he can't... Mm, same era. Same. I thought Paul Newman was still alive because same I'm still egg. eating his dressing. Oh, yeah. On the very rare it occasions when I have a salad. <laughs> it might be expired. <laughs> <laughs> About a decade, a decade ago. <laughs> All right, so so he you, he wanted Paul Newman, and he you were like, Paul he's Newman. dead. Who else did he say? He said somebody else. I can't remember. Hey, hey, here's a plot twist. Have Bernie Sanders play Bill Press. Oh, Bill gets confused, Bill gets for, confused Bernie for Bernie all the time. Does he really? Yeah. It'd be like some real auteur, like, it's not like super wait, art housey approach. People think that Bill Press is Bernie it. Sanders. It happens. Bill has like a full head of hair. Yeah, but it's often messy and white. Mm-hmm. Oh, but it's a full. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, like, You're right, we no. should all have a full head of hair like that. Yeah, you know, at Bill's age. Huh. Huh. Oh, now, now like you're fifty-two. Like, <laughs> That's it. Anyway, um, tweet at us. Tell us who should play Bill Press in uh, the TV adaptation of Shattered. Bob Schieffer at BP Show. Oh, Bob Schieffer would be a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's an awesome thing to tweet about. And then, and then also interested in people's. Uh, People's takes on Hillary Clinton, who should play Hillary Clinton? Yeah, um, and some of the other people who should pay, who should play Huma Abedin. Ooh, that's a good mm. one, right? Who should play Donald Trump? And Alec Baldwin, you got to take him out of the out of. Yeah, the I can't. We can't without. If we can get George Clooney's wife to start acting, she could play Huma Abedin. If we could get. Ooh, that's a good idea. If we could get her to start acting. Yeah. What about is- Gal Gadot? That's not bad. By the way, that's really sexist to me. Her name is Amal uh, Clooney. I should not say George Clooney's wife. That is sexist of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jamie. She's yeah. got a pretty damn good career on her own. <laughs> I'm just thinking of the biggest stars because I want the biggest stars to be. Of course you do. I mean, right? Of course you do. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> All right. So uh, enough about me. Um, it's never enough about you. Ouch. Oh. That's rough early in the morning. Well, I didn't mean it to be neg. You know what? Let's get back to the news. Yeah. And. Not just the news, but your special moment to shine, Peter, the full court press. Oh, no, we're not going to do that here. What? <laughs> I just told you we weren't going to do that. I just said we're not going to do that. We were going to do it before, then you decided. I'm going to do it the next hour. I can't do it here. I can't do it here. You can't? I promise I can't do it. All right, fine. There's no way. Oh, jeez. Do the full court press. I'm kidding. Everybody was waiting for you. We're your not going to do it here. All right, fine. You're going to have to wait until the next hour. All right. All right. So let's get serious and talk a little bit about health care, the Republican uh, bill to to uh, repeal and replace Obamacare uh, has been on life support many, many times. Uh, and Mitch McConnell, Senator McConnell, majority leader in the Senate, says they are going to vote on a motion to proceed no matter how anybody feels about it. And this ties into my belief that Mitch McConnell thinks uh, that the worst possible thing for his Senate Republicans is uh, anything resembling this bill becoming a law. What do you think, Peter? Uh, this this bill is not going to happen. This is this is not going to happen. Full stop. Period. To quote uh, Sean Spicer. And, and look again. It's it's like we've said this in the in the House. You know, this is not the Democrats getting in the way. This is not the Democrats' problem. It's the fact that you have again. I don't like to use the word moderate Republicans, but the vulnerable Republicans who see this as a total weight around their neck when they're running for for re-election. I think it's fair to to look at the Republican Party right now and say the moderates are the ones who think that um, treating drug addiction is an important thing to do or trying to prevent people from 
becoming addicted to pain pills is an yeah. important thing to do. I think it's fair to look at the Republican Party right now and say anybody who thinks that it's all right to have people on Medicaid is a moderate. Yeah, that's sure. uh, that's about right. Sure. So you've got that group, and then you've got the other group that says they will accept nothing less than full and total repeal, and we just go back and we figure it out. And you're just not going to find common ground for those people. And in the House, it was a long uh, shot, right? Like, it was hard to make that happen. But they made it happen because you sort of have the, the math there that works. But the math You can is do all- anything in the House. Yeah, you, you really can. You dissolve the union yeah, in the House. Exactly. The only thing that you could not do in the House of Representatives right now is pass articles of impeachment against Donald J. Trump. Yeah, that's Literally it, yeah, the only exactly. thing you could do. You could get it done because you've got the math. And the math is just a lot tighter in the Senate. It's just a lot tighter. And you're not. there's no way you're going to bring Ted Cruz over to see the point of view of, say, Susan Collins. I'm glad you brought up Ted Cruz because Ted Cruz said something about this legislation in the Senate that I think is fascinating. The bill today reflects the input from senators across the spectrum. It's not the ideal bill I'd like to pass. I I suspect there may not be a single senator for whom it's the ideal bill they'd like to pass, but it does represent a bill that reflects the concerns expressed across the conference. So remember, Ted Cruz at the Republican convention in 2016 said, as Donald Trump was being nominated, vote your conscience. A mic drop moment for Republicans, where Ted Cruz said, stood up and said, you know what, maybe Donald Trump shouldn't be president of the United States. Now, Ted Cruz says, don't vote your conscience. This bill isn't ideal. This isn't the right thing to do, but let's do it anyway. It's what is popular across the Republican conference. What happened to Ted Cruz, Peter? Uh, Ted Cruz is a cuck. A cuck. Yeah. C U C K. Yeah, that's right. You don't have to We don't have to, don't have to bleep that, that Jamie. We don't have to bleep that. Yeah. Cuck is okay. Look, I mean <sighs> Did you see the truck full of eels that crashed on the Oregon <laughs> Highway yesterday? What the cuck? <laughs> Are you That was the most disgusting thing I think I have ever, ever, ever seen. It was horrifying. That was um Ted Cruz's integrity all, all over oh, the highway. Oh, yeah. I was like, what is Jamie talking about interjecting with? He had, a, he had a plan. Did you see the elephant nine miles out in the ocean off of Sri Lanka? And then humanity came in and saved it. Yeah. Isn't that wild? Hey, I have to. I totally have to, different animal. I, I have to bring, I know we're talking about healthcare. I know we're sort of have a meandering kick so far on the show This today. is a Bill Press show breaking news update. But I do have some breaking news. Uh, from NBC News, a Russian-American lobbyist, a former counterintelligence officer, was also in the room when Donald Trump Jr. met with the Russians. So, <clears throat> a former Soviet counterintelligence officer who is, a spe- who is suspected of having ongoing ties to Russian intelligence was in the room with Donald Trump Jr. Yeah. Um, so this, I mean, like it's like every single day... And the lawyer wasn't even supposed to be in the country, right? That's right. I'm glad you brought this up. I'm glad we had this breaking news update. Uh, we're going to talk about health care after uh, about halfway through this hour, but we should get back to the main scandal at hand. Um, Peter, the comparisons have been made to Watergate. I think they're wholly inappropriate. I think the comparisons here have to be made to Manchurian Candidate. That there is, 
this is like, and I was waiting for it to happen. It happened finally this week. Julie Pace of the AP finally said it um, in terms of uh, in terms of the mainstream media, and I hate to use that the term. lamestream media. Hey, is what we whatever. Do. Like that's where my background is. Like, just kidding. Reporters work hard, man. Of course they do, dude. I feel like we're on a. No, I was kidding. I no, I was kidding. That was so. I'm sorry. I was being sarcastic. I do. I mean, I love you. I I do that sometimes. All right. So, Julie Pace put it put it well this week uh, in a column for the for the AP where she said Donald Trump Jr. connected all the dots. Mm. And for so long, and even still after that, I'm hearing people on television saying, "We're not sure there was collusion here." I'm not, Peter, I'm not sure what you would have to see if you still don't see collusion here. In fact, even the White House is essentially at the point where they're no longer saying there was no collusion and they're starting to say collusion isn't a problem. Right, that's it, yeah. That's the thing. Um, the, the goalposts have moved so much. There was, we never met with Russia, we never met with Russia, we never met with Russia. Then it's, well, of course we met with Russia. Anybody would do that. That's what anybody in our position would have done. To Mike Piss, who has said this whole time, that he never, ever, ever met with Russia. His spokesperson the other day was out there saying, well, we can't say that he never met with Russia. It's changed so much. Yeah, and I mean, look, uh, Pence was always like an anti-Russia guy in the in the Congress. Yeah. Um, so I would be surprised if he has the same level of taint. <laughs> Don't giggle. Almost hit the dump button for that one. <laughs> <laughs> you can say taint on the air. You can totally It say doesn't taint. mean what you think it means, Jamie. Okay. Um, I mean, it does mean what you think it means, but that's it like a second. Other, that's like an open dictionary definition. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's yeah. true. All right. So, if anybody knows taint, it's that guy. Oh, uh, so Jamie, would you play yes. the president of the United States making the argument that anybody would have been in the meetings that Don Jr. would have? I think, from a practical standpoint, uh, most people would have taken that meeting. Let's step back. Bull. S. Yeah. That's uh, most people would have taken that. First of all, most people wouldn't have had an opportunity to take that meeting. Second of all, most red-blooded Americans would look at Russia and say adversary at the very least. Yeah. Uh, third of all, in the middle of a presidential campaign, I mean, we're we're getting political operatives coming out of the woodwork right now talking about how they would never take the meeting, and you know how they know because they get offered meetings like that all the time. Yeah, exactly. Like, look how many American political operatives work overseas, right? And look, some of them work for really awful people sometimes. However, most of them draw a line somewhere. They're like, you know, I'm not going to go work for Kim Jong-un. Uh, I'm not going to go work for Muammar Gaddafi when he was alive before he got killed in the desert like a dog. Um, <laughs> I just, the, the like a dog is such, <laughs> a, like a, such a Trumpian, you know, every, everything is like a dog to Trump. Look, he's having an influence on the culture. She cheated like a Hello, dog. Hello, Jerry. <laughs> like, a, like a dog. <laughs> um, and then not only does the president say most people would have uh, would have met with the Russians, but he also had this unusual defense of his 39-year-old son, Don Jr. My son is a wonderful young man. He took a meeting with a Russian lawyer, not a government lawyer, but a Russian lawyer. Even the godfather doesn't defend Fredo. <laughs> I mean, what the hell? Well, here's the thing, though. This is the thing about the Trump family, because everybody calls Donald Trump Jr. the the, the Fredo of the Trump family. Even though he's the first son. They're all Fredo. They're, they're all, all Fredo. Fredo. They're all stupid they're... and bungling morons. They're all Fredo. There's no Michael. 
Maybe there is no Michael. Better, maybe that's a better way to put it. They, first, yeah, of all, first of all, Baron is too young to make that judgment about. Yeah, fair. I'll defend the, the child. Sure. Who goes to St. Andrews. I, sh- I shouldn't necessarily. A school uh, that was never known right. until Sidwell Friends and the other schools that most presidential children right. go to were apparently unavailable Right. To right. Okay. Baron Trump is not Fredo. He'll grow up to be Fredo, but Dude, he's not Fredo. That's, just leave the kid alone. No. No? <laughs> I don't think I will. What's particularly, uh, Eric, what's particularly upsetting about this is that the conservatives went from calling the the wrestling gif guy on Reddit a 15-year-old, that's right. the one that shared the wrestling gif, yeah. when he's actually a middle-aged man, middle-aged man living yeah. with his mother, Yeah. and now we're calling Donald Trump Jr. a boy, yeah. essentially. He's my age. He's 39 years old. He's older than Peter. He's older than me. You're welcome, Peter. Thanks, well, buddy. Peter, needed, Peter I'm not that. sure that that's necessarily the comparison that I would... Reach Don't for. compare to me. Yes, true. If I, I am, compare to you, I, 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 I am very like, juvenile and adolescent. Yes. I might like someday defend you Fair. by saying he's a nice boy. Yeah. <laughs> he's a very good boy. He's been a very good boy. That's fair. Yeah. Um, he's a very good boy. Th- I, he's a very good boy. We make light of this stuff because <laughs> it's so ridiculous, but like, there's no there there is no light that should really be made of this. I mean. There has never been a time in my life, and I don't think in uh, in anybody who's alive's life, where the republic has been so imperiled by the person who's in charge of it. Wow. Uh, and there is such a test, and we've been saying this for a long time, but there's such a test of our institutions and the framer's genius to prevent a single person from undoing uh, this republic. Um, and we've been undergoing it now for... Uh, well, at least since January, so for about half a year. Um, and it, it's not getting any better, Peter. And I think the thing that's surprising to me is that you've got this Hollywood-style story of this guy who gets elected president who probably could not have gotten elected president at any other time under any other circumstances, who is clearly de- deeply tied into Russia whether it's his investments there or their investments here, who uh, who has who is willing to put the country's interests secondary to his own personal financial interests, which is the kind of thing that he accuses other people of doing, that he certainly accused Hillary Clinton of doing, that nobody who's been president of the United States has been obviously doing at any time that I can remember. I mean, you'd have to, probably have to go back to the early days of the Republic to find people like sort of um, – you know, turning their the pre, the post of the presidency into a personal windfall. Um, you know, there are there are things that presidents haven't turned down before. You know, there are ethical lines that they've been close to. This is this is uh, there's a level of of apparent kleptocracy going on here that is uh, that is pretty amazing. And but the but like but what's amazing to me is he's not changing. Right. Here's well, why a guy, would he? Here's a guy who's in the middle of a Hollywood movie about the worst possible thing that could happen to the United States, which is somebody taking over who doesn't have the country's interests at heart and actually appears to maybe have another country's interests at heart. Yeah. So it's not even like from a neutral standpoint. Here's somebody who is uh, who is so excited to get help to win the presidency that his son will go meet with the Russians. By the way, he tweets about what the Russians might have the day his son his son-in-law and his campaign manager meet with this Russian emissary. Yeah. It is almost impossible to come up with a construction where Donald Trump is not uh, more interested, in, at, at least in his own p- personal performance, than uh, the best interest of the United States. 
And it's not hard to get to a point where it looks like he is more interest, interested in what's good for Russia than what's good for the United States. That's crazy, Peter. Like, I don't want to say that. I don't like saying that. I'm just pulling back, and that's like a pure analysis, is at the very best, this guy is all about himself to the exclusion of all others, including his country. And he's You're right. not, and and the proof in that is that he's not changing as this unfolds. But but here's again though, why would he change? What would he? What in the world would compel him to change? I've, apparently nothing. Because nothing. Because if, he, if you or I were in the same situation, which if we found ourselves, if we found ourselves, in, this is like somebody who pulls off a bank heist. And he's like, well, I already shot a couple of guards, so I'm going to continue robbing banks until I get caught and it ends in a blaze of glory. That's the perfect analogy. Not like, I got away with this bank heist, so now I'm going to pretend like I'm not a bank robber. I'm not like Joseph Kennedy, who was like kind of like a bootlegger and like <laughs> who like who made his money on Wall Street. Uh, I mean, he wasn't. Fast forward, makes his money on Wall Street and then becomes the SEC chair and actually does yeah. the job it's not like that but like on that on that same analogy just to beat that into the ground right the the bank robber analogy the cops aren't looking for him oh i don't i, I think they i think the cops are looking for him i think i think what what you're eventually seeing, what, somebody will catch up to him but we're years away from that well i mean i think the question is how much damage gets done in the interim but like this could get shut down. I'm like I'm not that guy that's that's like saying, "Oh, the Republicans should be saving us" because that's never going to happen and never will. It will happen as soon as it becomes untenable for them to have him as the Republican president. Well, yeah, but we're sense. we're a ways away. Yeah, from I'm not that, saying it's happening anytime soon. Like, but that's that's the condition. The condition is Paul Ryan has to wake up in the morning and say to himself, "It is unsustainable for this Republican conference to continue to have President Trump in the White House," and th- they're not there yet. And I, they may never get there, but that's the that's the politically unsustainable. What we are not seeing is people saying this is wrong. You know, I would love for somebody to ask uh, Lindsey Graham or John McCain what they would do if uh, if articles of impeachment were uh, passed in the House and the Senate had to pass judgment today. It's not the dumbest idea I've ever heard, but it's pretty close. Thanks, Jamie. <laughs> You mean thanks, Lindsay? No, uh, thanks for playing that right after I said that. Um, what, can you please explain what Lindsay was saying? That was from uh, the Sunday shows. Sunday yeah. shows this week? Yeah. It's about uh, starting a uh, cybersecurity firm. Yeah. With, uh, not firm, I should say, a committee, whatever they want to call it. Right, so the, president, right, so the president would like to, for, for a hot minute, wanted to um, form a task force or something with Russia to... <laughs> that lasted less than 12 hours, or right at 12 hours. He tweeted about it and said, we're going to do this, and then later on the same day says, we can't do that. A cybersecurity consortium with the Russians who just used their cyber attacks to break into... Like, like again, this is somebody who... It, it is hard to make a construction where he's most interested in, in the success of the United States. How can a president be in that position? I am sure that Vladimir Putin could be of enormous assistance in that effort since he's doing the hacking. So that's my question for Senators McCain and Graham is if you had if you had the opportunity to vote President Trump out of office right now, would you do it? No, and then I would wouldn't. keep asking no, they them, wouldn't, by the I way. would keep asking them every day. They're not going to. Well, but uh, so get them on the record about that. 
Um, because this is this is well past the point where, um, and look, I, people get very focused on the law. Like, did he break a yeah, law? Yeah, funny how that happened. Was it a campaign? Was it was a campaign finance violation for them to have this meeting? Um, you don't have to break a law to be removed from office, as it turns out. And by the way, scandal is not what it, what is illegal. Scandal is what is legal. Um, I don't think anybody ever contemplated a president of the United States. Anybody in modern times contemplated a president of the United States who was um, so in the thrall of another country and one that is that does not have the American interests at heart. Um, but clearly our founders thought about that. I mean, the emoluments clause alone is a, is a significant indication that they feared that somebody could, through the use of money, influence a president of the United States uh, to to help another country at odds with the United States. Um, we don't think about it. We've never this is we've never been confronted with this, uh, and yet it's um, every new revelation is both shocking and unsurprising. And I I don't find them uh, I don't find each one inuring. Like I don't find like. I'm not like one of these people that's like, oh, we've had this like whole long list of things. Like, why should I be shocked or angered or upset by this next thing? I actually find them to like be like increasing my temperature on it. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think mean, I think that's I think that's I'm the same way. I've also like it, it just it's gotten to the point where I don't want to say that I'm like numb to it because I'm not numb to it. I do continue to get angry about it, but I can't absorb this stuff all the time. I, really? I just can't. I can't. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I got a lot of unchecked anger already, John. Apparently. Yeah. So I think if you zoom back a little bit and you look at what's going on here, Julie Pace of the AP was absolutely right. Donald Jr. connected the dots. There is there is no longer any question about whether or not the Trump administration or Trump campaign colluded with Russia uh, to try to throw the election. There's no question about that anymore. At, at, Zero. Like, that's the bar to get over collusion. We've gotten over the collusion. Bar. But you know the White but there's House. More, is, I mean, there's more. Like, there could be more there, right? But the White House, you know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who won't go on camera, apparently the deputy press secretary, who now does the non-on-camera briefings, uh, because whatever, maybe Donald Trump gets angry when he actually sees the right briefings. She says there was no collusion. A good question for her would be, what is her definition of collusion? Yeah. And by the way, collusion isn't a legal term. They're treating it like a legal term. This is not. There's no, like, great legal question here. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether Donald Trump, at the level of what is the threat to our union, what is the threat to our country, what is the threat to our interests, it doesn't matter whether Donald Trump Jr. broke a law. It matters whether he tried to subvert the interests of the United States. Okay, but see, for them, the way that they're defining this now, which I think we have to be very careful about and keep our eye on, is to them, their definition of collusion is did Donald Trump Jr. go out to specifically undermine the free and fair democratic elections that we have here in America? That's sort of how they're framing it now. The way that they're twisting that is, no, 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 that's not what he wanted. They just wanted to take down Hillary Clinton, which could sell for his people. They hate Hillary Clinton so much that they don't care. They don't see that as a problem. They think that she is a bigger threat to the American system and way of life. And that's why you have to be careful because that's how they're framing it. It doesn't matter who the candidate is. But the it's the system that was under attack. But the percentage of people who will continue to believe that over the course of time is is 
maybe somewhat stable, but it is far below 50%. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if we're playing the long game. Yeah, I mean, even in the short time, even in the short term, I think I people, I think people right. are starting to. Uh, I don't know. I think, look, not everybody's paying attention to this stuff. True. Hey, most people care about other things. Um, but uh, we will have to talk a little bit more on it, about it on the other side of the break. First, we're going to do some healthcare with uh, Rachel Rubine of the Hill, uh, and then we will get back to what the Democrats ought to do about this Trump scandal and a little bit about uh, what the justice angle is from a former Justice Department official. We'll be back in a moment. Here. You've mentioned a friend, Jim. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Live video. Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. I feel like you could get stoned to that intro music. Oh, you could. <laughs> I didn't say you could get stoned. I can get stoned to anything. Broadly. You can get stoned to anything if you try hard enough, John. Uh, I'm John Allen sitting in for Bill Press here on The Bill Press Show alongside Peter Ogburn. Uh, back behind the glass. Uh, we have Jamie Benson hanging out with us. He is the Did producer you just check of this those show. Papers he for my name. name. <laughs> he forgot you. Did you? No, that? I was looking Did for you... your title <laughs> because Dunk Tank, uh, Dunk Tank Denizen was not uh, not available. Ooh, that's good. Wow. I like that though. Jamie Benson, uh, our video, uh, our producer is here. Rachel Pekarski, video producer, also behind the glass. Monty Kessler outside the door, the video operator. We are live on YouTube.com. You might know that already. That's right. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. And listen live on the TuneIn app, which you may also be doing. But uh, if you are trying to figure out how to do that, just look for WCPT. Can I tell you something? Yeah. That was very focused. Thank you. I it appreciate was very it. focused. Very good. I very appreciate it. Sharp. Well, it was written. It was easier. <laughs> Bullet pointed. Um, so now, Spoiler, now that the rest we've done of the show that, will not be like that. <laughs> now that we've done that, we're throwing things at the dunk tank. <laughs> Jamie, I hope your mom calls in to defend you again today. Oh, man. I don't it, know if she's watching. I'm, I, haven't, uh, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, hopefully she's watching. If she, if she is. She can call in. Anybody can call in, I think, at any time, right? Is that Absolutely is there... not. No, no? Wait, no. no when, sir. When do we do call in? We take no more calls. Ever? Only tweet us at BP Show. Oh, tweet us at BP Show. Yeah. And then if you tweet us at BP Show... And Jamie makes me aware of that, then I will respond to what you're tweeting, even if it's like incredibly offensive to me. Actually, I do have one tweet regarding the uh, conversation we had over who should play Bill in Shattered. Ooh. Oh, uh, Jessica Feely, a good friend of ours from the great state of Maine, she says if uh, Bernie can't play Bill unless Bill suddenly develops a Brooklyn accent. Mm. Ooh. I don't know if Bill's going to be able to pull off a Brooklyn accent. It's Delaware, California. I don't really see New York anywhere. No, it's not going to happen. He's not going to do Brooklyn. That's so Bill's happen. out. Bill's out. I mean, I think I don't know. I feel like we should ask. We should ask Carol if she can help him with a Brooklyn accent. I bet she could help. Maybe. I feel like that. I feel like she could be like a like an accent coach. I'm trying to think of who else could play Bill. I'll think about it. All right, you think about it. Think In the meantime, uh, Rachel Rubine, healthcare reporter at the Hill newspaper, is here to talk to us about the Senate health care bill and the prospects. Uh, Rachel, welcome to the Bill Press Show. Thank you. Um, 
so we have a revised version of the Senate health care bill, and Mitch McConnell says, we're going to vote on this thing. Uh, when is that going to happen, and what are the chances that it actually makes it to the floor and pass the uh, the motion to proceed, which is the sort of original test vote? Yeah, so Mitch McConnell said yesterday that a vote would be next week. Um, after the revised bill was released yesterday, we know already that two senators, Senator Rand Paul and Senator Susan Collins, are against the motion to proceed to get on to debate on the bill. So they can't lose any more senators there. Um, after the revised bill and senators came out of their closed-door meeting to learn more about it, a lot said that they were undecided. So I guess we'll see if there's any more tweaks coming out. I mean, if you vote against a motion to proceed as a member of the majority of the party, majority party, you are basically throwing a middle finger to your entire party, right? <laughs> I mean, this is not this is not um, a situation where. Uh, senators are being asked to vote on the substance of the bill. They're being asked basically whether or not they support the majority leader's decision to bring a bill to the floor. Yeah, they're being asked to, you know, even be able to debate the bill. So they have debate on the bill, and then there would be a voterama where it's like a rapid succession of amendments on the floor. So feasibly they could try and offer amendments there. But if you vote against that, you don't even get to the amendment stage. What are you hearing so far in terms of amendments? I know that there's a big pool of money sitting around for uh, potential uh, distribution to senators who might be wavering. Yeah, um, there is a pool of money. And we'll kind of see where where that's distributed, di- distributed or tweaked. Um, also, before kind of amendments, we need to see if there are any kind of tweaks that come out before that, any more money um, added to the bill even before then. What do you think is, uh, as you look at this bill, the revised version, so they basically, they're leaving intact some of the Obamacare taxes uh, so that it makes it harder to accuse them of cutting taxes in order to, um, or basically cutting Medicaid in order to pay for tax cuts. Uh, what are some of the big changes from the original bill, and do you think that it is? Uh, do you think that they're significant enough to really change the the, the vote calculations? Mm-hmm. So one of the big changes was an amendment from Senator Ted Cruz that basically lets insurers offer skimpier, more bare bones plans as long as they offer plans that comply with Obamacare rules. Um, so that was one, and Senator Ted Cruz said that he would vote on the motion to proceed, and if the if that isn't changed and some other conservative changes he wants are not taken out of the bill, then he would be for the bill, which is definitely like a big get. Um, Senator Mike Lee, also very conservative, said that he's still undecided, so have to see where he ends up falling. And then um, one significant thing that was not changed in the bill is a lot of the Medicaid provision stayed intact, which is a concern for moderates. Um, there was a few of them huddling in McConnell's office after the revisions came out talking about Medicaid. Um, the CMS administrator, Seema Verma, was also there. So um, you've written recently about uh, Senator McConnell's, uh, the reaction to Senator McConnell's plan in Kentucky. What's, what's going on in his home state? Uh, obviously, this is a state where uh, the Obamacare plan, essentially, the, the what do they call it? Connect, K Y N N E C T, mm-hmm. were was seen as pretty successful. Like they they were the the uh, 
the folks that like kind of stood up and basically they called their their plan something other than Obamacare, uh, which I think was bright from a marketing standpoint. So, yeah. Uh, they got a lot of people to sign up. There are a lot of people getting insurance now in Kentucky that were not before subsidized insurance. And Mitch McConnell's plan would would take away insurance from a lot of these people, or at least take away the the mechanisms. So what's uh, what's going on in Kentucky? Yeah, so Kentucky's a really just fascinating case study there. Um, it had the largest reduction of uninsured people in the country, like 20% to about 7%. Um, and like you mentioned, the Democratic governor at the time um, strategically didn't call the exchange Obamacare. Um, they implemented Obamacare really kind of to the fullest extent of the law. They expanded Medicaid. Um, now there's Governor Matt Bevin, a Republican. Um, he kind of dismantled Connect, so now people get their insurance on the federal exchange, healthcare.gov. Um, he on his has a waiver to try and do some Medicaid tweaks, but still, um, the no matter what Governor Bevin is doing, like repealing and replacing Obamacare would change the law substantially more in Kentucky. So. So Kentuckians are confused, probably, more than anything else. I mean, that is kind of one of the strategies, I think, here, is confusion, right? Because... Oh, absolutely. There is no way that you could take the Medicaid changes that they're making and pass that as a standalone bill. No way. In fact, there's no way you could pass pretty much any of this as a standalone bill. So they're like, let's pile on as much junk, I mean, as much bad stuff, like, in terms of politically bad stuff as we possibly can. I'm not sure... My view of this has always been that, and I said this a little bit earlier, I think Mitch, Mitch McConnell believes that the worst thing that could possibly happen for Republican senators is to enact a law that repeals and replaces Obamacare yeah. in the way that Republican senators might try to do it. That that the best case scenario for him is some level of failure. Because well, if they put this into law and it, they get hung with it in the next election, it could actually mean more seats dropping than uh, than are expected. Let me, if I can, for a moment, play devil's avocado because we had uh, John Yarmuth, congressman from Kentucky, in here uh, a couple of weeks ago, who knows Mitch McConnell very, 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 very well, and he said that he's certain that Mitch McConnell wants this to all fail. To yeah, I agree with Yarmuth completely. Apart. I kind of do too. I wasn't sure at the time, but I think you're right. I think That's that interesting. if they get hung with this. They're going to have to fight this for years. If you take it back to the beginning of this fight, when uh, the House was considering its initial bill, you had several senators come out really loudly denouncing the House bill, uh, some of whom are are somewhat close to McConnell. So you had uh, Rand Paul, for instance, uh, from the same state as McConnell, and who's against him right now, or apparently against him. Um, You had him out there yelling and shouting about how bad the House bill was. You had... Uh, several other members of the Senate doing that, and he didn't rein them in. I mean, this was a situation where he was letting these guys go out and trash the House bill that originally didn't make it, you know, originally got pulled from from uh, the schedule, and then eventually got passed. Then they bring up a Senate bill that has no chance of going anywhere. Now they're amending it. One, of, You know, you've got two people, a conservative in, in Rand Paul or Libertarian, and, and Susan Collins on the other side of it, to go to the motion to proceed. I don't see Mitch McConnell as a player here who is excited about getting this done and would like to find a way to scuttle it. But I'm, I'm curious what you think about that, Rachel, as you are actually covering it, and I'm just reading the, the newspapers and making judgments. 
Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Medicaid, and that's been such a tricky, tricky issue because there are 20 Republican senators from states that expanded Medicaid, and they've been concerned they don't want to, like, have a lot of their constituents lose coverage. And, I mean, even the CBO score on the bill had 15 million fewer on Medicaid. Compare that with the House bill, and that and the House bill had 14 million fewer on Medicaid. Um the revised bill didn't really do that much to change Medicaid provisions. So, I mean, just Medicaid alone is just such a big hurdle. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one thing for these guys to talk ideologically uh, and to talk to their base about how they would like to um, rein in entitlements and how they would like to stop spending so much on Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security. And it's another thing entirely when they start like hurting their constituents. You know what I mean? They, like, so there was a set of their constituency that's like, we want to stop paying for other people to have health care. And they can go and talk about that all they want. But these people represent entire states. And in each of these states, there are people who currently have health insurance who will no longer have health insurance as a result of the Senate bill or the House bill or any concoction that the two of these chambers come up with. And I think that's a lot tougher decision for these folks. And I think that's why you're seeing them raise objections. And I think the, the depth of the opposition to moving forward on this is a lot greater than Rand Paul and, and Susan Collins, I think they'd like to have it be big enough that they don't have to vote on it at all. That's that's my read of the Senate Republican Conference right now. I mean, they're also facing a hard opioid epidemic in their state, too, where constituents who um, are on Medicaid, Medicaid pays a lot for substance abuse treatment. So that's been something that's just come up so much even in the past two years, and that's also a big factor in this. The revised version added another 40, added 45 billion for the opiate epidemic. The Which is an ungodly amount of money for, to fight a particular drug or class of drugs. And there are, there are hard, there have been senators who've indicated that just putting that amount of money does not, you know, appease all their concerns. <laughs> yeah, I disagree with them in, th- in this. Like, that's an argument to not spend money on fighting the opioid epidemic. Like, I, I think that the answer is somewhere in between, or it's not necessarily about the money. You have to design the right programs. I would like to see money spent fighting uh, the opioid e- epidemic, um, that it is the only thing that seems to concern some of the Republican senators about this this particular bill is um, uh, shocking but not surprising. Um, I mean, there's like, okay, well, we're not really into like covering mental health. We're not into giving poor people insurance so that they are healthier, so that they don't have pain in the first place that they are then treating with opioids uh, that are first prescribed and later bought without prescription. Instead, what we ought to do is really just like kind of get that at the back end, like kind of clean up, uh, you know, sort of clean up the problem at the end. I mean, if you are taking people off of Medicaid, uh, I am certain that you are increasing the number of people who use opioids. Right, because you got to do something for the pain, and if you're not having it prevented and you're not having it treated in the first place, um, you will find a way to treat yourself. Um, and so, it seems odd to me that you would do both of those things at once. But um, politicians are uh, notorious for being able to hold mutually exclusive <laughs> views and promote both of them at the same time. Um, as far as the the healthcare bill itself goes, and sort of the process here, has there been any? discussion of how you would reconcile, let's say the Senate bill were to pass, uh, Mike Pence gets involved, punches it through uh, for, for the R team. 
how you would reconcile this Senate bill with the House bill? Yeah, there hasn't been a decision on that necessarily. I remember um, maybe a few weeks ago, the head of the hardline conservative Freedom Caucus, Mike Meadows, was saying that he would want the bill conferenced. Um, I think two weeks ago, he said that he felt like it probably would just be sent over, but leadership in the House hasn't made any decisions on that. Um, and do you think, uh, just putting on a political hat for a minute, and I know you're you're a health reporter, but just putting on the political hat for a minute, um, do you think that this is a situation where Republicans are better off broadly if they fulfill the promise of replace and repeal and with, with something that looks like the legislation the Senate and House are talking about? Or do you think they're better off if they fail to uh, complete that promise but don't pass this bill? I think it's really hard to know. And I think just like healthcare reporters have spent a lot of time in Capitol Hill hallways together. And we talk about this and it's just really hard to know. And some of the provisions in the bill don't go into effect until after some elections. There's some of the big changes to Medicaid that don't go into effect till 2020, 2021. So, you know, people who are on that program might not really feel that effect until after an election. Until somebody else is in office. <laughs> um, that's always the, the you can you can tell how much Congress really believes in what it's doing by when the effective dates are of particular legislation. <laughs> Um, that's funny. So in these Capitol hallways, uh, is any are there any provisions of these bills, and particularly the Senate bill, that people are talking about that are kind of under the radar? Um, something interesting, yesterday in the revised bill, there's a provision that gives some money to any state that has premiums that are 75% higher than the national average. And there's been some reporting and some experts who so far have only found that that would be Alaska, which is Senator Murkowski and Senator Dan Sullivan. It's an earmark. <laughs> there's been like people, you know, Call it trying an earmark. to come... It's an earmark. <laughs> there's been people trying to come up with names for that. It's too, called an earmark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the polar payoff or I don't know, whatever ones that well, I like I've that. heard. I think that was that was Bloomberg, I think, who I'll called it, it that. Like that. Um, yeah, so that's Does that that's mean that Lisa Murkowski is now on board? She she hasn't said. I mean, there's still not changes to Medicaid. And why really would she? I mean, the pocket gets sweeter. <laughs> the pocket gets sweeter. And by the way, I'm not outraged by these things. Um, I actually think the Congress would work better if there were more payoffs. Uh, I don't mean actual <laughs> bribes. It's a take quake. Yeah, I mean the I mean within the legislative process, I think it's okay to say we're going to make this legislation better for your state so that you vote for it. I think that's what the legislative process is. We've gotten away from the legislative process, um, and I I came around to this a little bit late. I I actually wrote extensively many years ago uh, about earmarks um, and uh, basically like revealed that uh, black members got half as much as white members and. You know, if you were in a vulnerable state or district, you got more money than uh, more money than people who weren't, and, and all sorts of problems with the, the system. And then they got rid of them, and that was not like the right answer. They should have reformed, in my view, should have sort of reformed the system. It it makes sense that you would ameliorate the pain to a particular state in order to get that senator, state senator to vote for something. 
Uh, do you have a, a particularly clever description for the Alaska buy-off, though? Because it's always nice when somebody does. Do you have your own, pref- or at least a preferred term? I kind of like the polar payoff. I polar think payoff someone, is very good. Yeah, things with alliterations tend to tend to work. <laughs> I wonder if there's like a like a bridge to nowhere play in there somewhere. Do you remember the bridge to nowhere? I do. Mm. Oh wow! Yeah, I remember it's that. It's pretty good. Uh, there was a um, <clears throat> way back in 2005 when you were in elementary school. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> um, there was a uh, there was a bridge to like Ketchikan, Alaska. It was like hundreds of millions of dollars in a uh, transportation bill, and it got dubbed the bridge to nowhere. Uh, because I think it served an island of like 60 people or something something along those lines. And that became sort of the poster earmark for what was wrong with the entire system. Uh, and that was Philip? also, uh, by the way, also in Alaska. Yeah. Uh, I think they stopped the funding for it. They did. And then Sarah Palin had been like an advocate for it and then flip-flopped on it. And, it was uh, a mess. It was a real campaign issue at the time. Yeah. But the thing is, um, they, <laughs> the thing is like, that's the only way a bridge gets built to Ketchikan, Alaska. Right, like there are some infrastructure needs in rural parts. Of, what, what's astounding to me is the people that are most upset about this are conservatives who, uh, whose constituencies are often in really rural, rural areas, areas that kind of need the federal government to step in, absolutely, and uh, and provide funding in order for things like the bridge to Ketchikan to happen. Um, and but getting back for a moment to this current health care bill, uh, who do you see as the vital senators to watch now that we're down to? Uh, anybody could scuttle it other than, you know, now that you've got Rand Paul and uh, Susan Collins uh, saying they're against the motion to proceed. Who are, who are the other senators that you would watch most closely? Yeah, on the conservative side, I'd watch Senator Mike Lee. Um, on the moderate, more moderate side, the kind of Medicaid concern side, I'd watch Senators Portman, Capito, Murkowski, uh, and Heller. Mm. Yeah. So, what's this deal with the deal with Dean Heller these days? The uh, <laughs> the uh, pro Trump super PAC was like running ads against Dean Heller. Does it, where does he stand with with regards to like doing anything to be helpful to the president right now? Yeah, they were, and then they stopped. Um, that was brought up in a meeting at the White House. But yeah, I mean, for Senator Heller, very vulnerable in 2018, um, right after the first version of the Senate bill came out, he and his governor, Sandoval, had a press conference where Heller basically said, oh, I'm really concerned about Medicaid changes. Yesterday, I believe he said he hadn't, he wanted to review the bill, need to talk to his governor. So I definitely watch out for that, see if there's any other press conferences coming up. (laughs) Jamie, um, can you play the the Rand Paul clip about where he thinks things stand? I want to get you to react to this really quickly on the other side of the audio. Well, you know, at this time, it looks like there are enough no's that the bill can't go forward. Is that is that true? Is he right about that? There's a lot of undecideds. There's the two hard no's. There's a lot of undecideds. So I think we need to see where things go in terms of any tweaks, putting any money anywhere else, um, before we know if you know, we can't even get to debate on the bill. Do you think there's uh, going to be a vote next week, as uh, Senator McConnell has said, or do you think that's going to slip further? Um, I think we'll find out more Tuesday. Um, 
it's hard to really guess on this. Um, it seemed like at least the first go around that they had enough people who were against a motion to proceed. There were like, after the first version came out, there were four conservatives who said that they opposed the bill as is. So that that was very clear last time where it felt like it couldn't go forward. This, I think, is a little bit more of a, of a wait and see. All right. Final sort of yes or no type question, uh, either or answer here. Um, Mitch McConnell decided to postpone the first couple of weeks of the August recess. Is it helpful or hurtful to his bill to have senators in their home states? To, sorry, to have senators it, in their home yeah, states? Yeah, if they were on vacation, if they were, if they were on recess, would that be helpful or harmful to this bill? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's hard for it to come back up after August recess. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, that'll be our last word from Rachel Levine of The Hill newspaper. We'll be back on the other side of this break with Caprika Faro, former Ohio State Senator and later up. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And if you're looking for who's going to play Bill Press in the TV miniseries version of Shattered Inside Hillary Clinton's doomed campaign, obviously it's going to be me because I'm sitting here right now in for Bill Press. I'm, this is my audition. Mm, that's, not a, that's not a bad idea. Not a bad idea? Me then who's going to play you? I'm not in this story. I'm outside the story. Mm. I I don't think I could play Bill Press. First of all, I'd have to lose about 200 pounds. Second of all, I think you should be in the story. You and Amy. We're, we're not. No. Uh, no. Look at him. The American people don't Journalists want, should not don't be part want of the, the media. Story. I, know, I knew they you don't were going to media in this. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, we're very pure. Unadulterated. Yeah. I Such know a, that about you. That I'm unadulterated. Yeah. I can't be adulterated. Um, so. Uh, we're starting off here, second hour. Just talked about healthcare. Now we're going to go into Donald Trump and the many, many scandals that are engulfing the uh, the Trump White House. But before we do that, uh, because we have a short period here, the this full court press. Is the full court press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Okay, if you're a walker, you walk around town. You got to be careful if you're texting and walking. There's a new survey that shows that. This is I, like this sounds like a funny story, but it's actually pretty serious. Fatal pedestrian collision, pedestrian collisions are up twenty percent in the states of Washington and Oregon. So they took a look to find out what this could possibly be, why these are so bad. Because fifty percent of people who are walkers text while walking. Now, if you're texting and walking, you're not paying attention, and the next thing you know, you could walk out into traffic, or you could get hit by a car. And who has more to lose in a fight between a car and a pedestrian? The pedestrian. So if you're unless walk- it's me or you, fair. 
That might be, depending on the car I can, model, I can knock it could down be a fair fight. It could... Since it's Bastille Day and the president is, is in France. Very timely. Very good. So, yeah, you just want to be if you're going to if you're going to text and walk, for God's sake, just look did, up. Did you guys see that argument on Twitter this week about driverless cars uh, and how traffic is going to be an issue because they have to stop for pedestrians? Oh, so yeah. pedestrians could get crafty and just step in front of a driverless car and the and car stop. has to stop. It'll stop. Yeah, the the sensors you, will make it stop. Really quick. The other day, and I, I hate to admit this on the air publicly now, but. Uh, I was stepping off the the sidewalk into a crosswalk, and a car like blew through the stop sign in front of me. And it was my neighbor. It was like the corner where I live, and I have small children, and this happens fairly frequently. I was pretty upset. And cyclists do it even more. And it like, yeah, my daughter actually got hit by a cyclist one day. Um, and really? so I was like kind of upset, and I followed the car. Uh-oh. I basically like yelled something with a hole in it. And then I wasn't driving, mind you. I was walking. I walked down the middle of the road behind the car, which obviously, uh, fortunately for me, had to like was going somewhere on the next block and had to stop. And as I got up to the window, about to tell somebody that they were, I wasn't going to be violent. I was just going to tell him he was a jerk. And I was like starting to get nervous, like maybe this guy will get out with like you know be angry and fight or whatever. Uh, He like rolled down his window. He's like, I'm really, really, really sorry. And I like, and then I went, and then I went back. I was like, "Thank you, I appreciate it." Please, no, I still try not to mad. kill anyone. I still get mad. Yeah, well, I still tell him off too. Yeah, you know, you got to, you got to do something with that rage. I just said, I just said, thank you. Please, please don't kill anybody. Hey, uh, we should uh, keep Jimmy Carter in our thoughts today. Ninety-two years old, he was in Canada working on a Habitat for Humanity home when he collapsed due to dehydration. Dehydration is no joke when you're ninety-two years old building houses. So just. Be thinking about Jimmy Carter. And recovering Carter. from cancer. And recovering from cancer, for God's sake. You know, someone should tell Jimmy Carter he could maybe take it easy a little bit. The guy's 92 years old. You don't have to build houses when you're a cancer survivor. And He and his wife are out. Yeah, he, yeah they're both out there. He, he doesn't take a break. You don't guy. think he's Donald Trump's friend, Jim, who says Paris isn't Paris anymore, do you? Ooh. When was the last time Jimmy Carter went to Paris? I don't know. It's a good question. Gems. James, <laughs> James Carlton. Hey, can James I mention a quick story here, Peter? Huh? Can I mention a quick story here? Sure. Oh, you got oh, ten oh, seconds. Oh, ten, yeah. uh, Tim Tebow last night hit a walk-off run uh, in Class A baseball. He's hitting three twenty-six. He's going to get called up by the New York Mets. I want to let you know that. Guy. I don't know why. Jamie's such a big Tebow. I'm not a Tebow guy. We'll be back. Just, Shush, Jamie. We're, We're cutting Jamie off. Bye, Jamie. <laughs> your radio on tv and online this is the bill press show and i'm john allen uh sitting in for <laughs> for bill press uh alongside peter ogburn behind the glass we got jamie benson uh we have uh rachel i totally love rachel pekarski i have the sheet that i printed up i know you, threw in, you crumbled rachel pekarski hi rachel threw Sorry. It, jamie she's waving <laughs> Uh, and uh, money canceller outside the door, uh, the video operator. But uh, more Today's important show, for the moment. <laughs> Today's show, man. This could be wild. Oh, brutal, it's dude. Friday. I didn't mean it to be a negative way. I just, I, I like wild. Apparently it's vendredi. Uh, it is. Absolutely. Uh, vendredi. Hey, come on. Maintenant. Je parle français, j'habite là quand j'étais étudiant en université. I feel holy. You're just showing off now. Yeah, holy inadequate now. <laughs> wow. Because Capri Cafaro is a French name, right? 
Absolutely. Can't get any more French than Capri Silvestri Cafaro. <laughs> Although, you know what? I got to tell you, this is actually pretty funny because um, I'm such a culture vulture when it comes to the to the French. And my sister is the same way with uh, the Latino community, and she did Latin American studies and whatnot. So we joke that she's Renee Cafarez, and I'm Capri Cafaro, <laughs> E-A-U-X. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice, which means that you're allowed to uh, root for LSU whenever you want to. Uh, no, thanks. Oh, wow. They, well, they, they beat Ohio State, like, my first year in office. Roll Tide. That's my only... Uh, you're from South Carolina. My, I went to Alabama, though. That's my country. Did you go to Alabama? Yeah, that's right. Now do you understand no, wait, why wait, I got that wait, Tim can Tebow I quote story from in? Steely Dan right now? <laughs> Please. They Please. call Alabama the Crimson Tide. They yeah. call me Deacon Blues. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah, that's nice. Well do. played. You came in loaded for bear today. You got all kinds of stuff. You know huh? Steely Dan. All he knows is Leonard Skinner. Oh, I know some Skinner. They call me the Breeze, too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, here's the thing about Leonard Skinner Leonard Skinner sucks. I, oh, I, come on, man. I, no, Leonard my, Skinner My favorite sucks. Southern band is actually from California. Creedence, Creedence, Clearwater, yeah, Creedence. Yeah, well, yeah. the Doobie Brothers are from there, too. Are they? Well, they, at least they live in San Francisco. They also suck. But, I mean, Creedence is, Come like, on. actually from, like, yeah. Northern California. Yeah. So, like, if you're, like, uh, uh, you listen to the to Fogarty, and it's, like, he, you feel yeah. like he grew up on a bayou somewhere. Totally. Like, he was born on a bayou, perhaps. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my God. We're just killing it this morning. All right, this so, is, this uh, is Capri, lot. you um, are the first guest, at least today, to introduce yourself. Since you said your I've, name first. Hey, I've been doing my best to shut up. For, I've been sitting here for like 10 minutes and I didn't get to that's say hard, anything. That's right? hard, right? hard. Oh my God, that's awesome. <laughs> should like do Capri torture where like you have to just sit and listen for like 10 or 12 minutes. Um, time out. So uh, Capri Cafaro, uh, former state senator from Ohio and political commentator. You may see her on television sometimes. Certainly hear her on the airwaves as well. Um, Capri, I want to talk to you. And so folks know you are from... The Mahoning Valley in Ohio. That's right. Uh, Eastern Ohio. When people talk about hard scrabble, working class whites, they are talking most frequently about the part of the country that you're from. Absolutely. And proud to have represented that community for a decade in the Ohio Senate. So, And folks might also know uh, like Congressman Tim Ryan right. from that area or former Congressman Jim Tra- Traficant from that area. We have a lot of color. <laughs> I know Tim Ryan's kind of boring for your part of the country. Yeah, kind of. But no, Tim Ryan, I mean, he can get feisty. And he does He does yoga. I mean. He does do yoga. Really? How, does, I feel like that's more appropriate to Paris than Youngstown. True. But, I mean, somehow he gets away with it because he was a football star for so long. Right? You yeah. do football, you can do yoga. That's right. Football players do ballet, too. Another French connection there. There it is. Yeah. Um, so I wanna, I'm trying to get a feeling for, and I just drove through, we were talking about before, uh, off the air, I just drove through the Midwest, and nobody that uh, I spoke to um, on my tour of baseball stadiums and diners Which and various You could not get more American than that. Yeah, right. <laughs> it don't get more American than that. So me, my five-year-old, and my 69-year-old dad like got in the nice. car. We went to Cleveland, so awesome. Detroit, both Chicago stadiums, Milwaukee, and then drove back. So we hit a lot, and we drove back a different kind of different route than we went out. So um, nobody was talking about Donald Trump and Russia. Um, to the extent that anybody was talking about public policy at all, it was about health care, and right. it was not. It was kind of mixed. It was ambivalent about uh, about what's going on in Congress. I mean, they were sort of mm-hmm. like anti Obamacare, but not pro what Congress exactly. Was at, which I guess I could have told from polls, but it was interesting to hear people talk about sure. it a little bit. Do you think Democrats are making a mistake in spending a lot of time talking about this Russia probe, or do you think they have to do it? I think it's a mixed bag. I mean, I think that there are some um, that, you know, 
are so focused on finding a way to get rid of Donald Trump and to taint him as quickly as possible um, and to continue this narrative um, that they feel that it's a, it's an absolute necessity and, you know, uh, political malpractice if they're not like all over this because it seems like it's this crazy smoking gun. However, um, just as you said, um, and I said I could see the same thing because I was I was home, uh, you know, over the Fourth of July holiday as well back in Ohio. Um, it, this goes back to the sort of elites versus like the real America, right? So the elites are like, oh my God, this is the smoking gun, treason, this, this, this. We're throwing around all these, you know, potential, you know, legal consequence terms. Um, and in the meantime, I mean, we saw the same thing happen when we, when like the Jim Comey, uh, you know, testimony came out, for yeah. example. The, you know, inside the Beltway and the media were like in a feeding frenzy over Jim Comey. Everybody else at home is like, um, you know, what's happening with health care, as you said, and, and um, you know, what about the unemployment rate and et cetera, et cetera. And so I think there is a reality disconnect um, from what the people want versus what the political elite class thinks is necessary to win. But that is exactly why Democrats lost in 2016. Right. So, um, I, I sort of have a theory, and I wonder what you think about this, that uh, if the Democrats just paid attention to the economy, that the, the press and other Republicans would do a pretty good job of skewering Donald Trump on the Russia stuff. That it is no longer at a point where Democrats need to bring up what's going on with these investigations in order for them to get coverage, right? So the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, like all the major newspapers, well, all Charles the major Krauthammer, networks. Charles Krauthammer, like just- Charles Krauthammer. I mean, when Charles Krauthammer is coming out with a, with a column saying that, you know, basically, you know, being, uh, you know, like a bungled collusion or whatever doesn't mean it's any, like, less collusion right. when he's going there. Right, I mean, it's amazing to me to hear people on television, we were saying this earlier uh, in, the, in the previous hour, amazing for me to hear people on television say, and we still don't know if there's collusion. I'm like, we know there's collusion. What what the the answer, the, you know, what you do about that, how serious it is, if there's a crime involved, if it's an impeachable, all of those are open questions. Whether there was collusion or not, like at this point, it seems pretty clear to me, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I can't, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know, you know, specifically what the legal definition of collusion is. But I will say, obviously, it is clear that there was intent on behalf of the Russians to help Donald Trump, it was in black and white. Right. They said, I, "This is part of the Russian government's like attempt and desire to support you in your candidacy." That was said, and then it was also said by Donald Jr. Like, "That's awesome if you have dirt." So those two things occurred. Do you agree with Peter that everyone in the Trump family is Fredo? I hate the Godfather. So because of the stereotypes of yeah. the Italians. Yeah. Okay. Oh, fair. That's but true. but like if it, like people, but I understand people that, like, are making that connection. No, Donald Trump Jr. is Fredo. I, I don't. They're all Fredo. I mean, I'm not making comments on who may or may not be Fredo. By the way, I did not ask you that question <laughs> because you're Italian. I know that. No, I've heard the Fredo reference before, <laughs> but I mean, nobody should be like so, uh, shouldered with having to be Fredo. Let's let's be nice to somebody for two seconds. Don't make anybody Fredo today. So you Friday. hate you hate the Godfather, but you've seen the Godfather. I have. I I can't say that I've fully sat through Godfather three. I've I've sat through Godfather two. It's a bad movie. I know it's a bad movie. Um, while while making Thanksgiving uh, dinner, um, because it's like you know inevitably AMC has like the sure. Godfather trilogy on. So yes, I've I've seen it, but I can't say that I've fully seen any one of the movies in a full sitting outside of Godfather two while cooking. Wow, no the, kidding. One of the other differences between the I God do love Goodfellas though, by the way. Such nice. Movie. And Casino. I love Scorsese. I just watched Casino again. Because so you want it like a little more raw, like. 
Well, I also those think... movies are a little more like a little more graphically violent. And well, like... well, and Scorsese. I mean, he did The Departed as well, so he's kind of a bit of an equal opportunist when it comes to issues yeah, yeah. of yeah. you know organized crime and controversy. Yeah. So. <laughs> He figured he better do better do the Irish mob. Well, I mean, point. I'm surprised that, was... that nobody said who is Ace Rothstein. Now that's a real question. I mean, you know, it, I, I just feel like sometimes our entire world is being litigated on the show Ace is High. If anybody's watching <laughs> this casino, it's like you're going to come here and tell me that you, you, I wasn't in your office. It's like, I mean, it's like that's like the Trump Twitter, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> So for those of you who love Casino, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't know. I was I was busy last night watching uh, Love Connection on on Fox. What? I watched Love Connection on Fox last night. Is that, that my, that's my admission? Is that oh, is that that's back on TV, isn't it? Yeah. But not is that? with Chuck Woolery. Wait, what's Love Connection? Oh, like Love Connection from the 80s? Yeah, but now they're they bringing have a it new back. One. Who's hosting it? Andy Cohen. Pass. Oh yikes! Yeah, it's a, it's gonna be a no for me. Yeah, it was bad. It was terrible. It's gonna it be was a, so it's bad. It's gonna be a big no for me. But I I don't know. I've always been drawn into dating shows like The Fifth Wheel and stuff like that. Like, What's that all about? I don't know. They have a great one in England, which is hilarious that I saw when I was just over there. Um, and it's it's called like Dinner Guest, I believe. And basically, like you um you invite people over for dinner and like it's a whole group, but each person has to like make a like take a turn cooking. Um, in their house, and it's just like the people just get so mad. They're just like, "What do you mean? Like, I don't eat this. I don't eat that." It's just like hilarious. So it's it's like you get voted off the island like based upon like your food, and you don't get to know like whether or not people like oh, are awesome. allergic or like are kosher or whatever. It's it's people just got so fired up. That's fantastic. Um, so where do you see all of this going with uh, with President Trump? What's your? Do you have a prediction? I don't think he's going to get impeached. Um, I you know I. Do you hope that he doesn't get impeached because that's good for Democrats? No, if he's there? I don't think it's good for the country. I mean, I think that you know, if we get embroiled in an, another impeachment mess, um, you know, that means that um, the rest of our you know government process comes to a grinding halt. It's already at a grinding halt because of this in, in many ways. Um, you know, you sort of have two parallel things going on in, in Congress right now. I mean, people trying to pass health care and have these conversations in regards to tax reform and infrastructure. I mean, the, the um, uh, Transportation um, and Housing Subcommittee of Appropriations just passed um, their um, transportation spending bill. And no one has talked about that at all. Right. OK, like things are happening, but at like a snail's pace. In the meantime, you know, Congress doesn't know what to do. They don't know, should we execute Trump's agenda? Should we be too close to it, not close enough? Um, you know, because Republicans are also trying to negotiate this whole thing. So, you know, the the political implications of the Trump administration are trickling down to the effectiveness, obviously, of Congress to execute a Republican agenda. Forget Trump's agenda, any agenda. Um, so I think it's just bad. I think it's just bad and for for the country. And um, I just, I, I unfortunately wish that we weren't going through any of this, but we are. So uh, what would your recommendation be? Like, if you got an audience with uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and uh, Tom Perez, whoever putatively is in charge of the Democratic Party, what what would your advice be for, like, how to go forward um, in terms of messaging for 2018? I, I mean, I think that um, what I would say to them, I think, would make them cringe and they would throw me out of their office. <laughs> um, Which says a lot of good things about you. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I think that the, the, the thing is what would shock people and this is what I get from folks at home and on Twitter and everything else. They're like, why isn't everybody working together? What is wrong with, with Washington? Why aren't people working together? I would, 
instead of sitting there and fighting and being the anti-Trump and fighting all the time, I, you know, I would basically ignore Trump entirely. I would ignore Trump, be like, let this, whatever this is, just take care of itself. Spin out of control. Go ahead, do whatever is happening and let nature take its course with the White House. In the meantime, say, look, we are the adults in the room. We are here to govern. I want to meet with Mitch McConnell. I want to meet with Paul Ryan. I, you know, the every ranking member wants a, you know, an audience with their chair or subcommittee chair. And we're going to sit down and we're going to have real policy discussions because we're here to work for real American people. And when the Republicans obstruct, then it's their fault. Right. And so I think that if I were them, I would make a big show and push. Um, and I would do it earnestly, not just for show. But, I mean, they could do it for show, too. I, I don't right. really care. That's up to them. Right. The best politics is doing the right thing. That's right. And so, and, and I think, because people have just been going off, but why is it us versus them with this health care thing? Why aren't people coming to the table? Why is it? Because everyone is just looking for some kind of, you know, um, they want, they don't want to be part of something because they want to blame others for it in 2018 and run ads against them. So they don't want their hand, they don't want their fingerprints on it. I think that's the wrong approach. I think you come to the table and say, we're going to try to help. Now, if you don't take our help, and if you don't take our amendments, and if you table everything we do, and if you gavel us down on the floor, then whose fault is that? We came to the table ready to govern and to, with the agenda that the American people care about. That's, you know, fighting on the tax cut issues, making sure that, you know, individual tax rates are appropriate before we're dealing with corporate taxes. I mean, you know. And I almost never hear that argument from Democrats. I hear Democrats argue against tax cuts. I hear them argue against corporate tax cuts in particular, but I don't hear a lot of making the the distinction and saying, yeah, maybe we could lower individual rates. Look, I mean, people need money in their pocket. I mean, my my view is, and I think that this is a a democratic view in many ways, um, is that our economy is built from the middle out, not from the top down. So instead of giving corporate tax cuts, which, you know, frankly, we haven't necessarily seen um, you know, trickle-down economics work in any meaningful way to create jobs. Um, you put more money in, in middle-class pockets, guess what? They're going to the movies. They're going to the mall. They're going, you know, they're buying stuff. They Maybe they're going to um, maybe they're gonna go out to dinner more. Maybe they're going to get their hair cut. Maybe they're going to, you know, buy, you know, even a new washer and dryer, whatever it is. And when you do those things, other people get employed. And so, right. you know, more money in individual families' pockets – and small business, um, and when you were talking small business, like really under 25 people or, or you know, 50 to maybe even less, um, that is where job creation happens. That's where the, where economic stimulation happens, you know, in my neck of the woods, at least, because we don't we don't have a huge, you know, multinational corporate culture or, you know, a service economy based in, you know, the knowledge economy, if you will. People work hard and then they reinvest it back into their local community and that creates jobs. And that's, I mean... You- gave a nice distillation of like sort of Keynesian economics, right? Like the <laughs> like the more you the more the more money is in the pocket of people who don't have a lot of money, the more they're spending that money and That's you right. get like a nice multiplier effect on those dollars, right? Like for me to take it away from the English that you spoke and take it into another language. But Thank you. <laughs> multiplier effect. I'm sure that's like, <laughs> I should never run for office <laughs> like, for a variety of reasons, but that's one of them. <laughs> An inability to break things down into plain, simple English. Um, so Capri... I'm looking at the Democratic leadership right now that we just mentioned, Nancy Pelosi, 
who's smarter than all the other people in her caucus combined. I, like, I really Agreed. truly believe that. Well, she's, we talked about this before. I mean, she's really talented. She's unbelievably yeah. talented. And I but also she's think, been there forever. I don't think that she nearly has gotten the credit that she deserves for what she did for the uh, Obama uh, for, for the Democratic Party in general, right? Agreed. Like, for all the talk that we throw the word Obamacare around, like she walked that thing. Probably call it Pelosi Care. She walked that thing <laughs> yeah, across she made it the happen. floor on her back. She but made it happen. People Twice. Flew, I mean, I know that yeah. I, I just in Ohio, Charlie Wilson at the time, who's since now deceased, unfortunately, but he was in the hospital and literally like went to the hospital to go and vote for Obamacare, and then Sherrod Brown flew back on, like I believe, Air Force One from his mother's funeral in Mansfield to vote for, for the ACA. So, I mean, like, they literally, I mean, I, the, the whip operation on that is like nothing I've ever seen. And I remember um, very vividly um, writing a piece about how, how Pelosi was the one that delivered this and the White House being very reluctant to weigh in on it. Until I went to them and I was like, well, I have two possible stories. One is Nancy Pelosi delivered this, carried it across the floor on her back, or Barack Obama didn't lift a finger to get this bill done. And I've got the <laughs> Barack Obama didn't lift a finger story nailed because I'm sitting on Capitol Hill right now. And there's any number of people that would like to tell me that. Right. Uh, I'm not. Ne- I don't believe that that's necessarily true, but like that's the story I've got right now. I'd rather write the profile of Pelosi. Well, I can't get it unless you guys yeah, tell me what yeah. she did. And then they came forward like. After I said that part, I'd been waiting all day for something from the White House. After I put it in those terms, I then got something from them that was about how much she had done to like get it done. It was like the final piece for this profile that I've been working on. But I was like, I can't do this without the White House yeah. like weighing in on well, it. Well, but you know what, though? I mean, I would just not. By the way, a little behind the scenes on how yeah, journalism like that. occasionally no, I like works. That. Right. Sure. No, I, you know, it's, it's in, I think you're right about this. And what's interesting, when I look back on that, and I, I that was my first year as minority leader. And so I was doing a lot of sort of political stuff at the time as well. And I thought to myself, you know, people are like, why is the White House, you know, basically just being so laissez-faire about, about you know, the passing of this huge piece of legislation? And um, I thought to myself, what they did was they over-course corrected on Hillary Care. Yeah. They basically, you know, they saw what happened in 1993 where, you know, they felt that the White House was really heavy-handed and that's what made it fail. So they're like... We're just going to let the legislative process take its course, which obviously has its other drawbacks as well. Right. And then, you know, but it, it worked. It did. But but then we but then unfortunately, there was terrible messaging. And to this day, I mean, it's still terrible messaging. All we do when we talk about, quote unquote, Obamacare is talk about the exchanges or, you know, basically, you know, the, the health insurance and the premiums. There's so much more. I mean, and then sometimes Medicaid. There is so much more to what the Affordable Care Act did for Medicare um, for you know, creating innovation, um, you know, within the um, Medicare and Medicaid sort of spheres, nobody ever talks about the stuff that that you know is actually in the bill. Meanwhile, I actually read it. So. Meanwhile, meanwhile, I think on the Republican side right now, there's been this huge mistake of uh, they're making all these Medicaid changes and they didn't lay the groundwork for that. So they're not making the argument that you that basically Obamacare expanded Medicaid so much that you are talking about people at four times the poverty rate uh, being eligible for Medicaid when it used to be one and a half, I think. Yeah. So had they laid the groundwork for saying that this has been expanded beyond where it was intended or whatever, I think they'd have a better argument. I'm not saying I agree with that argument, but I think they'd have a much better argument than suddenly just stripping health insurance away from millions of people and then saying, well, you know, we're just doing that. Right. Well, and that's why you get folks like Sherry Moore Capito from West Virginia being like, I'm going to personally kill this bill. You know, if I can get my chance at it. And I mean, 
you know. Well, I mean, your 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 part of the country is not very far from her part of the country. No, exactly. Uh, um, so, what? And Rob Portman continues to be very uh, uncommittal. What do you think's the best thing for him? I mean, look, you know, and I can tell you this. I mean, Governor Kasich is like all over this, and he's been all over it publicly and everything. I mean, he's really trying to push, um, you know, and and ensure that. Um, we keep Medicaid intact to the point where because John Kasich cares about people, right? John Kasich cares about people, and to I the just point, cut an ad for John Kasich, but he does. He, but he does actually care about people. He does. He does. And so, I mean, and we just went through this in Ohio. You know, even though I'm term limited, I still pay attention. They actually tried to stop Medicaid expansion in the last operating budget. Kasich line item vetoed it. So, bottom line is, you know, will Rob Portman listen to John Kasich? Um, and and I think that, you know, well, Rob Portman was just recently reelected, so he's got five yeah. and a half years. But he'd like to be governor of Ohio someday, maybe. I don't know what, what Rob Portman wants. And he's a very, very, very nice guy. I know him, and he's very nice. But I think that he needs to have um, he needs to have some courage on this because Medicaid expansion has helped the working poor, single childless adults, um, really have, have benefited from this. They've stayed employed. Uh, the Commonwealth Fund just came out with a report saying that over 900,000 jobs will be lost if uh, you know the changes proposed in the Senate version of this bill are going to occur. One of our largest in, um, growing sectors of employment in the state of Ohio is healthcare, with the Cleveland Clinic and a number of other um, healthcare institutions. Um, you know, and then the opioid epidemic and and throwing you know a buck or two at the opioid epidemic as window dressing is not going to help this. We have mobile morgues. All across Ohio because we can't keep up with it. So, I mean, I think that he needs to step up. I mean, he represents the same people I do or I did. And, um, you know, this is not good for Ohio. Um, the one thing I wanted to ask you before you go that I was starting to get at before was uh, who, who interests you in the Democratic Party? Who do you look at and go like that person could be the person that actually gets it and could run this party? Or move this party in the right direction. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, honestly, <laughs> I, I I continue to be a big cheerleader for my member of Congress, Tim Ryan. You know, I was a vocal supporter of his. You know, un, you know, notwithstanding the fact that you know, I think we all acknowledge that that Nancy Pelosi is incredibly talented in what she does. Um, I think that Tim Ryan does speak to a number of the things that we've talked about as mm -hmm. far as getting reconnected back with all the places you drove through yeah. to watch baseball. Right. Michigan. I even Wisconsin. stopped in some of them. Exactly. <laughs> Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, you know, Ohio, lesser Illinois has its own issues. It's yeah. Illinois. Um, sorry, Illinois. Uh, but, <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, everybody looks to the Cory Bookers and Elizabeth Warrens and, um, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, because from where I sit in my neck of the woods, um, you know, everybody that's out there, I think, you know, sort of more in the public eye from the Democratic Party is seen as, as a disconnected elite. And um, I don't know how you fix that because I don't know where our is farm team is. Yeah. Yeah, it's fair. Everyone I, in the Democratic Party, essentially everyone in the Democratic Party is a disconnected elite. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that the that the leadership that you yeah. see on yeah, television. The leadership, we got a real problem. Yeah, the leadership that you see on television, the people that that the American public consumes as what it means to be a Democrat um, is not an accurate reflection of what it means to be a Democrat and what the rest of the Democratic Party looks like in the rest of the country. So sure. how do we reconcile our public face with the reality of what rank-and-file Democrats are? And that is the last word. Okay.
from Capri Cafaro. Thank you, sir. Thank you for joining us. Uh, up next, uh, we have Stacy Plaskett, the delegate from the Virgin Islands. Do you guys know each other? Nope. I hope you say hello as you pass. You guys should know each other. Awesome. Shake hands. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I uh, hope to see you soon. Absolutely. And Anytime. We'll, we'll be back on the other side of this break. France is America's first and oldest ally. A lot of people don't know that. Get social with Bill Press. Like us at Facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. I'm Jonathan Allen, sitting in for Bill Press. Uh, alongside me, Peter Ogburn, executive producer. Good morning, John. Behind the uh, dunk tank, Jamie Benson. Jamie, your mother has not called in yet, so far as I know. Uh, but Jamie's just putting on his headphones, so I got you can't nothing. hear me making fun of him. No, I got nothing. <laughs> He's a producer. He produces. Uh, I totally lost my notes again. Rachel Persicki. <laughs> Did I get it right? Pekarski. Pekarski, it's close. Oh, everybody's Pawtucket. laughing at me. I, it's the first time I've met Rachel. Yeah, it's true. Rachel Pekarski behind the glass, and uh, on the other side of the door, uh, Monty Kanzler, uh, video operator, making sure that you can see us. You got it. All right, done. Uh, and you can follow us on Twitter at Bill Press Show, at which BP is at BP Show. At BP I got it. Show. I got it. At, at BP, BP Show. At BP Show. We're really cooking with grease now. We it's got early. It. It's early. It's not even that early anymore. I, uh, thank you for the excuse. The voice you hear there, and uh, if you're watching, can see now uh, Stacey Plaskett, the delegate from the Virgin Islands. Hey, good morning, everyone. Good morning, guys. Big up, Virgin Islands. Big up, VI, VI, big up. <laughs> That's, how, did, how did you know that? Come on. Have you spent a lot of time in the Virgin Islands, Peter? I'm in these streets, you know. Boop, boop, boop. <laughs> wow. All right. Let loose here on the Bill Press Show. Let's do it. All right, Bill Press is never going to let me sit back in this chair again, is he? Absolutely. You're All welcome right. anytime. All right, so, uh, Stacey, um, delegate, uh, what's the... Yeah, so um, the it's officially delegate to the to Congress for the Virgin Islands, but in Congress... What should I call, call you? Congresswoman? Does yeah. that work? All right. Yeah. All right, yes, ma'am. I feel like delegate's a kind of pejorative term that's used for... Uh, second class to undersell the yeah yeah, yeah. It, which right? by the way I think is total BS like we have a, a country founded on uh, the idea of full representation for those who are taxed uh, and see? yeah mm -hmm. I would like to see mm -hmm. I would like to see representation in the District of Columbia the Virgin uh, Islands listen, Guam I was just you name it if you're Jennifer, an American you yep, should be represented I was just talking to Jennifer Gonzalez Colon the representative from Puerto Rico and they're like. Oh, but you guys don't pay taxes. She's like, we're very happy to pay taxes. Make us a state. Done. Right. Mm -hmm. Everybody should. We should have fifty-seven states. Agreed. Uh, or how, is it is seven? Is it seven? I think there are seven yep. non-states that mm -hmm. should be states. All right. Uh, so that's my feeling for the moment. But that's actually not what I want to talk to you about. Okay. Um, I want to talk to you about the Donald Trump investigation, mm -hmm. um, and per in particular because you've worked with a lot of the people involved in this before. Isn't that crazy? Right. Uh, you were former, uh, <clears throat> tell me if I'm wrong here, a former acting deputy attorney general. So I had quite a number. You know, we move along when you're, uh, as, as in Washington, I was called when I was at the Justice Department. I was there as a political appointee, and the career people called us the Christmas help. Right. You know, because we're only oh, wow. there for yeah, a short right, yeah. while. Right, right. <laughs> Whereas everybody else at the Justice Department gets their job there and stays there forever. Ever. I, I mean, I worked with someone who came in um, as an honors lawyer during Robert Kennedy. 
being the attorney general. Wow. So, uh, but yeah, so I worked with, um, I came in and I was with the civil division originally. Then I went to the, and I was an acting attorney. Deputy Attorney General over the torts branch. And then I worked, went to work with the Deputy Attorney General, um, who at the time was Larry Thompson, and then stayed there when James Comey um, was the uh, Deputy Attorney General and was on his staff as well. So I got to, I mean, so I worked for James Comey, um, worked with uh, Mueller, who was the FBI director right. at the time. And then the chief of staff when I was a staff attorney was Chris Ray, who I reported to as well. So, that is now the uh, FBI yeah, nominee. Yeah, so it, they're, they're a particular type of law enforcement officers So this is well. what, I'm, what I'm interested in. Now, mm-hmm. Now it seemed to me the big moment in all of this was when Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, appointed Mueller, mm-hmm. uh, which seemed to be somewhat of a, a reaction to Donald Trump throwing Rosenstein under the bus on the whole question. Well, I, of, I never thought of it that way, but that might have been like, here, take that. Right. right. I mean, so yeah, Rosenstein gets the job and then they say, and then Trump says to him, you got to come, come up with a reason to fire, uh, to fire Comey. Rosenstein does it. And then Trump says, well, I didn't fire him because of the reason Rosenstein said. I did it because, uh, because of Russia. Exactly. And then Rosenstein appoints the, <laughs> the special prosecutor here, right. uh, Robert Mueller. And uh-huh. uh, Mueller's like the last guy in the world that, Donald Trump would want looking into him, right? Well, Mueller is, of course, one of the straightest shooters uh, that comes around. These are guys, Mueller, Comey, Chris Ray, who are strictly about justice. Uh, you know, as Chris Ray during his nominations was saying, I will resign. I will tell him. And that's the feeling I think that great lawyers have is that you're there to give people counsel. When they don't take your counsel, that means they don't want your advice which means that she shouldn't be there, which means you need to leave, hence you resign. Right. Uh, and that's what Chris Ray is saying. Uh, you know, people have to remember that James Comey and uh, Mueller working together at the Justice Department went and protected uh, Ashcroft right. when the White House at the time, Gonzalez, wanted Ashcroft to continue writing. Right, he's basically journals. like, he's been like uh, sedated or whatever. He's got, yeah, he's, he's like in, in the, the hospital. hospital so they're going to grab his hand and like sign it for him. And then him. He, everyone sees how uh, tall Comey is. Mueller, right, and, but Mueller is not a small dude either. Oh, really? No, he's not. He's at, at least like 6'4 um, and, and not thin. Right. And so these right. guys are there watching over him. But what uh, people are unaware of, and I think this might have come out with Chris Ray, is that Chris Ray was one of the individuals that were willing to uh, turn in their resignation over the torture memos, along with James Comey, you know, and the staff at the time. So these are people who put their oath and their uh, belief in the law above who they work for. That's a really interesting thing. We, John and I have this conversation all the time about sort of your duty to country versus serving that country under this president, right? right. Yeah, and I think that that's a precarious, you know, I talked with Chris um, before the hearing. Um, I've had conversations with his team. Uh, I've been very supportive of him, talking to Democrat senators about having worked with him and my thoughts about him. Um, and you kind of like, Chris, yeah, you, you accepted the nomination. Condolences? <laughs> Congratulations? <laughs> I'm not sure but what you've to been, say to But you. you've been helpful to him in terms of talking to Democratic I senators. I have. And, you know, the Democratic senators that I've spoken with, 
have said, you know, I've heard only good things about this guy, and he seems to be the individual who wants to do the right thing. And aside from the whole Russia investigation, one of the things that Chris Ray came to me and said was that I want to have a discussion. I, um, I'm trying to have facilitate a meeting with John Lewis because I think that the issues of civil rights and um, criminal justice are important. And I want to sit down with Cedric Richmond, who's now the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, and have discussions about what the FBI's responsibilities and our duties are and my thoughts on that and to get your, you all's thoughts as well. It's interesting to me because I think that that seems outstanding mm-hmm. um, from the perspective of you have a lot of people that come into office and never – that's not their first thought. Their first thought isn't, let me go sit down and meet with John Lewis. Let me go sit down and meet with <laughs> right, Senator Richmond. Right. And you would think that it would be, right? Like that this is – there is a civil rights division of the Justice Department, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. there is uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, prosecutor or, or at least investigative activity at the FBI sure. that I mean, involves Think about the civil rights involves, movement right. with the young men in Mississippi. Right. It was because the FBI decided to go down there and – so you, investigate would th- that. so you would think that that would be something people <coughs> think of, and, and yet it seems so, so outstanding. Well, you know, I don't, it seems like I, it's say, outside it of the norm. Out. That's what it's, I mean. I don't mean outstanding like great. I mean uh-huh. like it stands out right. from what we generally hear I, I from nominees that, for these jobs. Right. I think that he's going to be looking across the board, but he recognized that this, this is an issue. Uh, and I think particularly with the attorney general that we have, who has signaled that this may not be so important to Jeff Sessions. That, that this was such is a nice way of putting is, it. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm what a lawyer. Really, what do you really I'm think, Congresswoman? I think that Jeff he should not be the attorney general. And why? Um, because I think that he has compromised himself already several times in that position and because of his lack of commitment to uh, justice for all. So both reasons, the Russia thing and the fact that he's got a, a pretty bad record when it comes to right. and has justice demo- for all. And has demonstrated that already in the FBI uh, in terms of, listen, I come from a law enforcement background. My grandfather, my father, uncles, cousins are police officers. Um, but my, as my dad says, the, uh, the worst thing to a good cop is a bad cop. Mm. And you've got to do the right thing. You've got to get rid of the bad cops. You've got to have training. You've got to prosecute the ones that are uh, doing bad and not protecting everyone. And I don't think Jeff Sessions understands that. Uh, I wasn't and it may be because he doesn't think that those other lives are as valuable. I was going to say, I mean, we, we the clearest sort of difference we could draw between Barack Obama and Donald Trump, I mean, there are a lot of differences, obviously. But I think one of the things that we I can... Like, I think Barack Obama dresses better. Let's That's for sure. Except for the Except tan, for the tan suit. suit. Yeah. I no, I, I love that. No, I love I can't go, that. Really? You didn't like that? I guess that would be, a, I, I guess that. It felt kind of 80s to me. I mean, in the summer, if it's hot, I, I can see kind of a, a tan suit. Move. But I, uh, I, can't, I can't put, at least you didn't wear a seer something. Oh, you are from Brooklyn, right? So you yeah, would know yeah. the hipsters. I can't oh, go, I can't go <laughs> But I think that one of the clearest things, one of the clearest signals that the administrations are giving sort of separately is inclusion, right? Barack Obama and the Justice Department, you saw Eric Holder stand up many times Mm -hmm. to sort of say, you know, in this part of the country, these voices are not being heard, they're not being served, they're not being um, represented fairly. And then you have Donald Trump and Jefferson Sessions who sort of collectively just say, like, those don't matter as much. Right. And this was something beyond the justice, straight justice in terms of President Obama and I mean, the reason the Republicans are having such a difficult time with this health care bill is that President Obama 
provided a tremendous number of and an amount of benefits to uh, Donald Trump's constituents and to Republican exactly. constituents. Yeah. That it basically, when you expanded the the level at which people got Medicaid coverage to four times the poverty rate, while that certainly helped a lot of minorities, it helped more white poor people and white uh, working class people than it did anybody else. Sure, there are more white people on food stamps and welfare than there are black people. Right, and so I think that that's, I mean, I think that that was um, a beauty of the Obama administration, mm-hmm. that there was this inclusiveness mm-hmm. and not just on, I mean, yes, in the in the sort of law enforcement world and the justice world, but also on the, in the public policy realm and you I, know, beyond I'm, that. You know, you talk to people as well in terms of foreign aid and support. Um, oh, the Obama administration, even the Bush administration, just tremendous work that was done in Africa and Asia in terms of HIV and soft diplomacy, right? right. That's needed throughout the world. You can't just be the hammer. You have to make it the, there has to be the love of America. What, is, what was it that Barack Obama used to use? Uh, sometimes you need a scalpel instead of a hatchet. You know, mm. you got to really get in there and do it the right way. The and, right way. Right. Yeah. Right. So um, and and I'm fearful that we're not going to be seeing that. In this By the way, uh, our friend Romaine on Twitter found us where we're tweeting at BP show. He says the tan suit Obama was good. Thank you. Yeah. So well, where is you he know from? What? I wonder where he's from. Uh, he's from Chicago. Oh, see. Midwest. Congresswoman, at the risk of sounding overly flattering, uh, I would submit that you are probably uh, better on fashion than Peter <laughs> Fair or me, totally fair. This is this is you are no. dressed like this, <laughs> professional, ready to go. Peter is in a black V-neck T-shirt that he bought at Walmart. Can I tell you when I, I so. when I, I in a previous <laughs> before I, we got a laugh before I went came to Congress, um, you know, and in, in private practice in other positions that I've had, uh, when I decided I was going to run, uh, I always tell the story about how this is really a change for me. Uh, I went into my bottom drawer to get my favorite jeans, and they were gone. <laughs> and I was like, what happened? And my husband said, they told me I had to get rid of those things. You couldn't be seen. And then I was like, oh, foul. <laughs> Conspiring. Well, you don't want to end up like President Obama in the mom jeans, because I think we can all agree that that was not oh, a good look. no. Yeah, 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 yeah. We can't have Right? Like, that was bad. We can't have those mm-hmm. jeans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he should also stay away from cutoff shorts or throwing out first pitches. But let me tell you, he looked great after presidency when he had that, uh, what was it, that he had on the the white pants, you know, they were out hanging out, him and Michelle. He's a good looking guy. I haven't seen anybody look better than Barack Obama out of the presidency. (laughs) Right, Like, that is a weight lifted. Mm Mm-hmm. In fact, his hair is no his longer gray. His hair is retroactively <laughs> going back. It's like, it's like the Benjamin Button. He's <laughs> getting younger. And yeah, younger. right. <laughs> the secret to you. Mm-hmm. Get out of the presidency. Just get out of the White House. Well, you know, when you're talking, going back to the Russia, uh, I'm sure you've seen that now the uh, House Democrats are moving to try and force resolutions yeah. with regard to Russia, which I think is going to be very interesting. Um, you know, these are, are bills which, once introduced and go to committee, have 14 legislative days. So uh, my assumption is is this will be something that will occur after the August recess. Right. Because we're not going to have 14 legislative days before we leave. Certainly August. the Speaker can control how many legislative days there are <laughs> should, he or, should he want to. Exactly. Strangely, yeah. a legislative day can last six days if the Speaker wants one to. Um, 
But I am curious about that. I was just uh, talking to the last guest, Capri Cafaro, former Ohio State senator, about the Russia investigation. Obviously, there's a serious... I mean, I think we've got... I was saying before, like, I don't think this is like compar- comparable to Watergate. I think this is comparable to the Manchurian candidate. This is like what we are dealing with here is like, like, you know, seven days in May meets fail safe meets like all of these like horrible, like disaster scenarios about what could happen uh, in the worst possible way to like the, the leadership of the United States. Like, that's what this feels like. This feels like we're dealing with um, really something that somebody conceived in Hollywood of somebody who's first interest is not necessarily that of the country. Well, I, I'm, I'm always shocked at the amount of backpedaling or changing of story that needs to be done. Um, you would think, and when I talk to other politicians or you talk to elected officials, or even as an attorney, you're like, listen, just get the truth out and let's manage it from there. Controlling the narrative. Is Controlling what a good the narrative feels because you tell the truth. Yeah, right. Because then people can't come back on you and you have to change and change and change right. and change. And that's what we're facing now. So now we have seven individuals. Which, by the way, is no different than a child who broke the lamp. True. Like, just own up to it right away. Yeah. You'll well, save yourself I, a lot of torture. Yeah. I have, and, and my best friend will tell you, I have two kids that still will not admit that they were the ones who put the hole in the wall. <laughs> but um, and, it, and it strains their their credibility with you, I'm sure. Right, right. But I have to give it to them for sticking to it that way. Somebody taught me this great trick with my son, uh, who's five. Like, a long time ago, they were like, when you know he's lying, tell him to stick out his tongue. And I'd be like, I can tell you're lying. And so now I'll be like, like he'll say something and I won't know. And I'll be like, stick out your tongue. And if he won't stick out his tongue, I know he's lying. Ah. Uh. <laughs> This is like, this is like a brilliant trick. He's going to catch on one day. No, someday he'll catch on and then he'll lie about things. He'll be like, uh. <laughs> yeah, right. And he'll be 39. Like, <laughs> and I'll be like, he's a good boy. Like, he's a good boy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just like uh, Donnie Jr. Um, but the, the point that I wanted to get to real quick on that was um, we've got this kind of like, and maybe you think about, you know, you're a lawyer you're at the Justice Department. You've seen a lot of crazy things. Like you think about these like wild scenarios, like where where is, you know, my institutional uh, commitment, my oath of office going to ha- like come into conflict with like mm-hmm. the Russians, I guess. Maybe people think about these kinds of things. Um, are Democrats making a mistake not letting journalists and Donald Trump's fellow Republicans carry this story while Democrats talk about kitchen table issues? You know, there is an effort, and I sit on the Democrat Steering and Policy Committee, um, which is Leader Pelosi's, the group that First puts everyone on committees, but then throughout Congress has discussions about messaging, about bills. And we want to just talk about these issues, uh, about the issues that are important to everyday Americans, you know, whether it be the health care, um, whether it be tax reform, infrastructure, job creation. But we keep getting pulled into this uh, whirlwind or this vortex of Russia. Uh, and so you can't not discuss it because you go on talk shows and you're there to talk about one thing and the Russia story comes up. You look on TV and there's always some new breaking piece that comes out that has to be addressed. You, you just how do you look if you don't say anything about it? But I believe that our leadership um, and most Democrats want to stick to the issues that are important to their constituents. I mean, you know, we're not talking about the fact that we have the defense bill coming on the floor, right? And there are 200 and something amendments that are attached to it. What does that mean? And where are these um, 
where is our defense spending going to be? We're not having that discussion right now. We're talking about the fact that Donald Trump Jr. said he didn't meet with the Russians. Then we found out he did. Then he said it wasn't important. And now we find out it was. Uh, the president said that he didn't know about it. Now we found out he did know about it because Jared Kushner told him about it after it happened. And it, it just doesn't end. Um, <laughs> Jim Comey, uh, you worked for him. Mm-hmm. He's not at this point the central player that he was at one point. Right. Um, but still somebody who's important in this story of the 2016 election and of the mm-hmm. investigation into President Trump. Can you help me understand, help the audience understand what motivates Comey and how you look at what happened in 2016 with him coming out and condemning Hillary Clinton publicly while not pursuing a prosecution, then coming out later and saying he opened, uh, reopened the investigation, then having these meetings with Donald Trump where he's like secretly recording his own notes because he thinks what Donald Trump has said is, is scary and ought to be recorded. What do you think is the explanation of Comey that knowing him that makes the most sense? Well, you know, I I can only I can't know a person completely. Right. right. We all know that uh, we're married. We we don't know people completely. But uh, I can't. I'm calling my wife. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I, the first two were questionable to me. And I don't know if it was the pressure that he felt to make some kind of statement um, in the first instance, with regard to I am going, uh, we are not going to pursue prosecution. Okay, you say you're not going to pursue prosecution, and you say it because Loretta Lynch is not in, not in a position anymore to be able to say that. But then all you're supposed to do is say, we're not, and leave it at that. To be called in um, to the hearing that he was, which was my Committee on Oversight and Government Reform, and then go through the litany of answers that he gave was always, to most prosecutors, was always very questionable. Um, and the fact that you so close to an election made those statements. Now, do I believe, I'm one of those Democrats who don't believe that it um, materially affected what the outcome of the election is. I know a lot of my colleagues don't agree with me. A lot of good Democrats don't agree with me. But I felt like when I was out there on the field uh, doing the campaign work that I had I had a bad feeling um, for a long time um, in areas like Florida and Pennsylvania. But uh, it questions why would he do something like that? And there may be information that we're unaware of that he felt that he had to do that. Now, the writing, the, the notes with, with the president mm-hmm. is completely within the realm of a James Comey, with completely within the realm of a good investigator that contemporaneous or immediately thereafter meeting with someone to take notes about it. You know, you've seen the uh, detective shows where they come back to their desk and they're typing furiously yeah. on their um, on their typewriter. Right, it's, the worst part of investigative work. Right. right. It's because most of the time it's completely meaningless. And then, right. Because you're going to forget it. So you yeah. want to get it when it happens. And that actually, in terms of court documents, is uh, admissible to, to some extent because it's refreshing your recollection to the events the reporters do that. I mean, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people that then, you know, a few minutes later, I pulled out an iPhone or a BlackBerry at the time and typed in what they said because I was right. like, I don't want to forget what this person just mm-hmm. told me, mm-hmm. and I don't want to forget the words that they used. Exactly. Um, and, of course, people are w- more willing to tell you things when you don't have a notebook pulled out. 
Sure. As it turns out. <laughs> and listen, you know, you saw in the nomination um, hearings the other day that Chris Ray said he would never have had the kind of press conference or the discussions that um, James Comey had. <clears throat> so that's the right answer. That's, that's the, the right answer, answer that Congress wants right now. That's the answer that they want. But he's now going to have to stick to that because that's on the record. Have you seen, as somebody familiar with the law and paying attention to all this, have you seen laws that you think have been broken by the president with reg- or his family with regard to Russia? Do you think that there's a point that we've crossed a, a, a legal threshold yet? Uh, wow, that's a good one. Um, I think we're, we're, we're a hairpin away from it. Uh, I haven't, you know, the laws that people talk about are so difficult to So prove. never used. So never used and Campaign so finance law with regard to Don Jr., <coughs> the president himself obstructing justice by firing Comey. Like there's a question there as to whether right. the act of firing him, which he's allowed to do, mm-hmm. actually amounts to mm-hmm. obstruction of justice because co- of the right. intent. Collusion is a difficult, um, it's a difficult crime um, to meet the standard of. So all of these things are things that I think in totality reeks of lack of confidence in the president. But do they lead to impeachment? Um, I'm not there yet. Well, I was going to say as a member of the House, um, as somebody who's listening to this very closely and Mm -hmm. thinking about these things, does he have to have broken a law in order to be impeached or is it a completely political exercise or question? It could be either. Right. Right. Um, so it doesn't. So it does not have to be that you have a specific. I don't specific think so. Law. I mean, but I think in, in an impeachment hearing, there uh, you will definitely. I think at this point in in our history, you would have had to have broken the law for someone to to go there. That will be the final word. That's it. Congresswoman Stacy Plaskett uh, of the Virgin Islands, thank you for joining us. People should uh, follow up and uh, follow what you're doing. Um, thank you. One of you the know, more the, interesting yeah, new members of Congress. Thank you. Thanks. And the VI is looking forward to this everyone coming down. This is and being the a part Bill Press Show.